Hello there, everybody. Happy Monday. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show that is tenaciously devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church that have already happened and that you already know. On this week's menu, we have a bombshell resignation in Germany rocks the Catholic world. The Pope offers sympathy, but no, I'm sorry for Canada. Pakistani Christians are acquitted, but experts say that's not nearly enough. The Vatican turns over a new leaf, in this case, a Nissan leaf. And finally, reflections on a Catholic perspective on the single most delicious food item you will ever taste in your entire lives, I guarantee it. That's what we've got on the other side, so please stick around. So we begin this week with a bombshell resignation in Germany. Now, you know, normally by the time cardinals get around to resigning for some reason linked to the church's clerical sexual abuse scandals, they are doing so in disgrace. It's either because they themselves have been accused of abuse or because their mishandling of abuse charges has been so spectacular that their archdiocese has just become ungovernable and there's no other choice. I mean, we can think about Cardinal Hans Hermann Grohr in Vienna, Austria, uh, who resigned in the 90s because he had been accused of abuse when he was a Benedictine master of novices. He was accused of abusing novice monks. Or we can think about Cardinal Bernard Law in Boston, whose handling of the John Gagan and Paul Shanley cases was just so controversial and so egregious in the eyes of many people that there just wasn't any other option. Uh, however, uh, this week, uh, last Friday to be precise, uh, a cardinal resigned in Germany for reasons linked to the sexual abuse scandal, but not because he himself has been accused of doing anything wrong. Instead, Cardinal Reinhard Marx of Munich, Germany, made public a resignation letter that he had submitted to Pope Francis asking to be relieved of his duties as the Archbishop of Munich because, he said, it is time for church leaders to take corporate responsibility for the church's institutional failures. Basically, his argument was, doesn't matter whether I myself have done anything wrong. I was part of a system that presided over these failures, and I need to take responsibility for that. So this is a cardinal who is resigning, not really in disgrace, but more in glory. I mean, this, this uh, offer to resign uh, has been widely hailed across the Catholic spectrum as a long overdue gesture uh, of accountability and responsibility by a church leader. Now, uh, there are a couple quick caveats uh, that need to be outlined here. Uh, one, uh, and this is a perennial source of misunderstanding about the Catholic Church, a bishop can't resign. It, it's not up to a bishop to resign. A bishop can offer to resign, which is what Cardinal Reinhard Marx has done, uh, but uh, it is always up to the Pope to decide whether or not to accept that resignation. Uh, and there are countless cases of bishops who submitted their resignations and yet continued to serve years, in some cases, decades, uh, well after that happens. 
Now, in this case, most observers think Pope Francis is going to be obligated, probably, to accept this resignation, because if he doesn't, this is going to look like a very hollow gesture. Maybe some people would even think it's a political stunt that Marx, and maybe even the Pope himself, cooked up uh, to try to make the church look better without actually changing anything. So, uh, while, my, while the betting line uh, is that this resignation will be accepted, it's not official, and Pope Francis has asked Cardinal Marx to stay on uh, as the Archbishop of Munich until he makes his decision. Second, another perennial source of misunderstanding about the Catholic Church. When a Cardinal Archbishop of a diocese resigns, he is resigning only as the archbishop of that diocese. That means if this resignation is accepted, Marx will no longer be in charge in Munich. Somebody else will have that responsibility. Uh, but he will remain a cardinal in good standing, which means he will remain eligible to vote for the next pope. He's only 67 years old. Cardinals don't lose that privilege until they're 80. Uh, he would remain a member of all of the various Vatican departments to which Pope Francis has named him, uh, including uh, he would remain the chair of the Council for the Economy, which is the policy-setting body on financial affairs to which Pope Francis named him, and he would remain a member of Pope Francis's Council of Cardinals advising him on Vatican reform. In other words, he would remain every bit a cardinal of the Catholic Church, and he would remain a key ally and confidant of Pope Francis, whether he's in Munich or not. Third caveat that needs to be read into the record, there is an independent report on allegations of abuse against Catholic clergy in the Archdiocese of Munich, which is due to be released later this year. Cardinal Marx referred to that in the statement he made to the press announcing this resignation offer, saying that it may well be that this report will suggest he has some things to answer for, but he insisted that is not the motive for this resignation. We will have to see what that report contains. Cynics would suggest Marx knows it may contain some bad news, and this is his effort to get out in front of it. Others would say Marx genuinely has no idea what that report is going to contain, but felt it is important to do this now because the sex abuse crisis is once again peaking in Germany because of accusations and revelations about the Archdiocese of Cologne. Marx simply felt a sense of responsibility to try to take what he considered a long overdue step. We will see how all of this plays out. But two things, by way of takeaways, to me seem immediately obvious. One, this sets a precedent for other leaders in the church. If you are a cardinal, an archbishop, a senior church leader in a country that is wrestling deeply with clerical sexual abuse scandals, and where there are revelations suggesting that this was an institutional problem, the question now will be, why don't you follow Cardinal Marx's example? Why don't you turn in your own resignation? In that sense, Cardinal Marx, by taking this initiative, uh, has set the bar for everyone else uh, at his level in the Catholic Church. He has essentially 
throwing down a gauntlet. Uh, and we will see who picks it up. Secondly, I would bet good money that while Reinhard Marx may no longer be the Archbishop of Munich in fairly short order, uh, his career as an important mover and shaker in the Catholic Church is far from over. For one thing, if he is no longer in Munich, this clears a path for Pope Francis to bring him to Rome. And there are some important gigs that are, that are you know, on the market, so to speak. At the moment, Canadian Cardinal Marc Ouellette, who is in charge of the Vatican's Congregation for Bishops, is getting close to his 77th birthday. That's two years after the mandatory retirement age of 75. It would make all the sense in the world for Pope Francis to name Cardinal Marx to that position. He could have a decade naming Catholic bishops all around the world. So in other words, while he may be out of Munich, Marx is not in any way out of the game. All right, speaking of Canada, second this week, we have the Pope's Angelus Address yesterday, that's the talk he gives at noon every Sunday when he prays the Angelus, the traditional Marian prayer. And yesterday, Pope Francis addressed a simmering controversy in Canada having to do with the discovery on May 30th of the remains of more than 200 dead children on the grounds of what had been Canada's largest indigenous boarding school. Uh, it was founded in 1890 and run by the Catholic Church for most of its history. It was taken over by the federal government in 1969 and finally closed in 1978. Uh, on May 30th, these remains, in other words, the, 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 the bones uh, of some 215 children who apparently died at this school, were discovered on the grounds, there was never uh, any investigation uh, and never any accountability for these deaths. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada has apologized uh, on behalf of the federal government. Uh, and on last Friday, he demanded uh, that the Vatican and the Catholic Church also apologize. Now, while individual bishops have issued their own apologies in Canada, the Bishops' Conference has not done so. On Sunday, Pope Francis said uh, that he had received the shocking news from Canada with great sorrow. Uh, he was close to the pain and suffering of the Canadian people, but he did not issue a direct apology as Prime Minister Trudeau had demanded. Now, in part, that may be because the Pope felt his hands were tied in, in 2018 when abuse uh, of children in, uh, in, in church-run boarding schools uh, was being much discussed in Canada. Uh, there was at that time a demand that the Pope apologize, and the Canadian bishops put out a public statement saying that the Pope could not apologize for something for which he was not personally responsible. And the Pope may have felt obliged to uphold that line. Uh, it, it should be noted, he has apologized. Uh, in fact, multiple popes uh, have apologized for the abuse of indigenous persons in other contexts. Remains to be seen if Pope Francis going forward will find a way to thread the needle uh, and issue the apology that the Canadians appear to want, 
uh, without appearing to throw the Canadian bishops under the bus. All right, third up this week, an acquittal in Pakistan of Christians accused of blasphemy that while welcome, uh, many experts say doesn't go nearly far enough. So here's the story. Eight years ago, a Christian couple in Pakistan, farm workers, were accused of blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad. Basically, the accusation was that they had sent blasphemous texts via cell phones to some people they knew from this farm work, Muslims, insulting Muhammad. They were denounced to the police. Under Pakistan's very tough blasphemy laws, they were arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, which is the penalty under Pakistani law for blasphemy, spent eight years on death row until finally last week, they, an appeals court uh, overturned their conviction and ordered them released. The basis, by the way, for which the appeal was upheld was that this couple is illiterate. Neither the husband nor the wife can read or write. So how in the world were they supposed to have written out these blasphemous texts and dispatch them via cell phones? What emerged is that the people who were mad at this couple had bought burner phones, composed the texts themselves, sent them to themselves, and then denounced them to the cops. Now, most experts looking at this situation would say, well, look, it is a good thing that at the final instance, this couple was acquitted. But the question is, who's going to give them back the eight years that they lost on death row? Who's going to give their kids back the eight years that they lost of contact with their parents? Much like the case of Ozzie Abibi, the illiterate Catholic farm worker who spent 10 years on death row before she was finally liberated, no one ever has been prosecuted for making false charges under Pakistan's blasphemy law. Uh, and the question is, why not? Actually, the bigger question is, why does this blasphemy law exist at all? Pakistan's most famous martyr, Shabazz Bhatti, who was the only Christian minister in the, in the Pakistani government, a very faithful Catholic, who was shot to death uh, at his home in Lahore, the capital of Pakistan, uh, had questioned the very reason for the existence of this blasphemy law, saying that in a secular state with a healthy distinction between church and state, such a law shouldn't exist. Now, going forward, remains to be seen uh, whether the, the blasphemy laws will be modified or whether there will be greater accountability for bringing false charges under these laws. Of course, the Pakistani government is trying to thread uh, a needle between, on the one hand, wanting to seem open to the modern world, wanting to seem a modern country in which the rule of law applies, uh, and therefore a full partner on the global stage. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, not wanting to anger or alienate the very strong Islamist uh, majority in the country that has very strong feelings uh, about these blasphemy laws. Uh, remains to be seen how they will manage uh, to put that square peg into the round hole. Uh, but it is the defining challenge uh, of Pakistani society at the moment. 
And it also means that for Pakistan's religious minorities, Christians and others, uh, these blasphemy laws are going to continue to be a kind of permanent consignment to second-class citizenship and to perennial fear of legal harassment, incarceration, and perhaps even death uh, until some kind of fix is achieved. All right, fourth this week, the Vatican turns over a new leaf. In this case, it is a Nissan leaf. Now, if you don't know what that is, uh, the Nissan Leaf uh, is that, uh, that the Nissan, of course, uh, is a Japanese car company, uh, but with a global reach. Uh, and the Leaf uh, is their popular electric car. It's actually the original uh, electric car. Uh, the Nissan Leaf came on the market uh, almost a decade ago uh, in 2012, uh, and it's now in its second version. Uh, the second version has a more powerful battery that allows the car to achieve greater speeds and to go longer without a recharge. It also has a larger interior space. Basically, it looks, feels, drives like, you know, a classic car, uh, only it has a battery instead of a gas engine. Uh, this week, uh, one of these Nissan Leafs was donated to the Vatican in a ceremony. Uh, that involved a formal presentation to Cardinal Giuseppe Bratello as head of the Vatican City State uh, by an executive of the Nissan Corporation also participating, was the ambassador of Japan to the Holy See, also the ambassador of the United Kingdom because the Nissan factory where the leaf is built is in Sunderland uh, in northeastern England, it employs a lot of Brits, uh, and so the British ambassador was on hand. And this, of course, was touted as a gesture com highly compatible with Pope Francis's emphasis on care for creation and his environmentalism. His 2015 encyclical, Laudato Si, the first ever uh, papal encyclical devoted entirely to environmentalism. And so uh, this was sort of styled as a great meeting of the minds between the corporate world and the ecclesiastical world in their common pursuit of a greener and healthier planet. Now, you know, of course, cynics might suggest uh, that Nissan's motives for wanting this photo op uh, with the Vatican probably weren't entirely altruistic. I mean, here you and I are talking about the Nissan Leaf, right? It's, it's free publicity for the brand. And, it, you know, it raises the question of the always uneasy, always difficult to manage relationship between the Vatican and free market corporate capitalism. I mean, on the one hand, the Vatican wants to encourage responsible corporate behavior, which means that when corporations do something good, uh, it is incumbent upon the Vatican to recognize it and to give them the opportunity to celebrate it. On the other hand, the Vatican also doesn't want to be in the position of being a corporate shill uh, and of being manipulated for huckster ends. Uh, always difficult to, to figure out uh, exactly how to strike the right balance there. In this case, the Vatican decided to err on the side not of caution, uh, but of commercialism. Uh, and basically endorsed 
the, the Nissan LEAF and the use of electric cars as an alternative the, to the traditional gas engine. Finally, this week, I want to spend a brief moment uh, reflecting on one of my three favorite subjects in the world. Those subjects are, in no particular order, faith, baseball, and food. Uh, this week, we focus on food, uh, and specifically, the single most delicious, delectable, divine dish uh, on the face of this or any other planet, uh, and that is Amatrachana. Amatrachana is a particular kind of pasta sauce characteristic of the Italian, the central Italian region of Lazio. Uh, that's the region that includes Rome. It is therefore where I live. Uh, and basically there are three ingredients at the base of it. Uh, it is guanciale, which is a, a, a specific slice of pork. It comes from the cheek uh, of the pig. Uh, it has a finer, denser fat uh, that lends a particular flavor. Pecorino cheese, cheese that is characteristic here of Lazio. Uh, and then finally, tomato sauce. Uh, now, there has been for generations a long-standing debate here in Lazio and across Italy about whether it is okay to also put onions and garlic into Amatrachana. Basically, Romans would say yes. People who were actually from Amatrice, that's the village where Amatrachana was born, would say no. In fact, they went to the European Union last year and got a cultural protection designation for Amatrachana that rules out the use uh, of onion and garlic. So technically, according to the European Union, if you put onion in, you're longer making amitrogenic. Okay, well, anyway, th this debate has been, if I can use the phrase, simmering for a long time. Over the weekend, uh, I read a book by a well-known Italian novelist that opens with a dialogue on a train from Rome to Milan. Uh, it's a dialogue between a kind of sage, older architect uh, who's, uh, a, a, you know, a, a passionate, uh, about food and Italian culture, and a hot-headed young Italian uh, engineer who is from Amatrice and whose mom made Amatriciana a certain way, and therefore he believes that's the only possible way. What this architect does over the course of this opening scene is he persuades the young man that onion and garlic is actually an acceptable alternative because he says the secret to Italian culture is the capacity to remain rooted in tradition and yet adapt creatively to changing circumstances. He points out that onions were actually part of Italian dishes in ancient Rome, that the tomato, meanwhile, was introduced in Italy until the 17th century when it was exported from the New World. And he says that the onion and the tomato both being classic expressions of the Italian kitchen are both legitimate adaptations depending upon the tastes of your guests. In essence, he's making an argument that it's okay to have it and okay to not have it. In other words, he's arguing for unity in diversity. In other words, he's arguing that the right answer to this question is both and, not either or. I ask you, where have you heard that before?
That too is the Catholic instinct. And it makes the point that you can dip your finger into Italian culture almost anywhere you want to. And when you bring it up and lick it, what you are going to taste is the taste of Catholicism. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our show for this week. One of these days, I will do an entire show devoted to Amitrichano. We don't have time for it this week, uh, but someday. Uh, we will be back here next Monday, same bad time, same bad channel. If you like Last Week in the Church, please give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet. Go on the social media platform of your choice and make disciples of all the nations. Also, check out the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. In the meantime, over the course of the next week, please stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.